Yeah, Luke 24, verses 44 through 47. Do you follow along with me as I read the word of the Lord for us to focus on this morning? Now he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord for us to look at this morning. May he add his blessing to the reading of it and to the preaching of it today. Amen. You may be seated. This passage that we're uh, looking at this morning is uh, a very rich passage. Obviously, there's much in it that we're not going to be unpacking today. It's not the purpose of the sermon today. Uh, But if you have never read John Bunyan's, um, there it goes. No, it's not Pilgrim's Progress. It's uh, Jerusalem Sinner Saved. Is that right? I believe it's Jerusalem Sinner Saved. I'll check that title. If you want to go read it some other time. Uh, (laughs) Man, it just left me. What's, yeah, I know, getting old, getting old. I'm going to be 35 this year. Man. Yeah. What sparked my attention, uh, to, or to what drew to my mind to bring that to your attention, is that the book focuses on the fact that Jesus commands the gospel to begin being preached throughout the whole world, starting in Jerusalem. And Bunyan unpacks the significance of that and just, these are the very people who crucified Christ. These are the ones who put him on the tree, who rejected the Messiah, and yet the Messiah says, I want you to go back to them and I want you to preach the good news of the gospel to them first so that they would know that sin does not bar them from the grace and mercy that I have purchased for them before the throne of God. Just love that. So if you want to read more about that, I'd encourage you to read that book. And... uh, Anyway, would you pray with me and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time today? Father, we do uh, gather here today in hope and in uh, the measure of assurance that you have given us by faith to the resurrection of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we gather in his name recognizing that he is our only hope of salvation. He is our only hope of forgiveness of sins before your judgment seat. He is our only hope of being delivered from the wrath that is to come. He is our only hope of living with you in reconciled fellowship for all eternity. It all flows to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your son. You willingly and and even open-handedly, joyfully gave your son for the good of the world and the good for sinners, good of sinners like us. Father, we thank you for his death. We thank you for his death that satisfies justice 
on behalf of those who cling to him in faith. Lord, we thank you for his death that has absorbed the full weight and measure of holy justice that is due to us because of our sins and crimes against you. Lord, we thank you for uh, that, that satisfying, atoning death that was demonstrated to be worthy and acceptable in your sight by his resurrection from the dead. Lord, that's what gives us the hope and the confidence of knowing that our hope in Jesus Christ is not in vain, that as he rose, we will also rise with him. Lord, would you please bless uh, the preaching of your word this morning. Open our minds to understand the scriptures. Lord, fill our hearts with the spirit of the Lord. Lord, strengthen our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Help us this morning, Lord, through a greater realization of the glory of the gospel. Help us be filled with a greater measure of the fullness of God. And, uh, Father, uh, these blessings will only come to us if you will bring them to us. And so we pray you would be here among us. And may we know your presence in abundance this morning. Father, exalt the name of Jesus and strengthen our hope in his name. Father, we pray and we ask for these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. 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 Well, here in the passage that we're looking at this morning, we have the great themes of what God has revealed to us in the Old Testament. Friday, we referred to these themes, Friday night at our Good Friday service, we referred to these themes as the elements that form the grid through which we're supposed to read the entire Old Testament. Jesus says here in Luke 24, 46, thus it is written, or in this way it is written, and it is referring to the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the writings, everything that he described in verse 44, he comes to verse 46 and he says, all of this has been written in this way, that the Christ would suffer, that the Christ would rise again on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name unto all the nations. In other words, that is what Jesus is telling us the entire Old Testament is all about. It's all about the suffering of Christ, it's all about the resurrection of Christ, and it's all about the preaching of Christ. Forgiveness of sins being proclaimed in his name. Now we looked at the suffering element of that Friday uh, together. This, this grid through which the Old Testament is to be read involves the reality that the Christ, once he came, was going to suffer on behalf of God's people. We saw that in the promise of Genesis 3.15 where God promised, I will send a seed from the woman who will be your deliverer. He will crush the head of the serpent who is the instigator of all this destruction and uh, uh, introducing sin into the thought of Eve and deceiving her. I will destroy him utterly by one of her seed and in the process his heel will be bruised. There we find in that a promise that when the Messiah came he would not only deliver us but he would deliver us through his own suffering. Uh, we saw that in different pictures and types and shadows prefiguring 
Messiah figures and Christ figures suffering on behalf of God's people. We saw that in Isaac and in Joseph and in the sacrificial system under the Mosaic law. And then uh, Henry Jones came up to me afterward and says, you know, I think another one that fits in there is Jonah. And I said, Henry, you're exactly right. And we're going to bring up Jonah on Sunday. So, but he's right. All of these are pictures of savior type figures whose through whom God brought salvation to people by means of their suffering. And then we saw the reality that the Christ would suffer in the Old Testament through the specific prophecies that described his sufferings on behalf of God's people, sufferings for their sins. We looked at that in Daniel 9, 24 through 26. Once the Messiah came, he was going to bring in everlasting righteousness, and he was going to establish absolute atonement. He was going to do away with the sins of his people. How was he going to do that? Verse 26 says he would accomplish that by being cut off and having nothing. Um, Isaiah 53, we saw the crushing of the suffering servant under the hand of Yahweh being the means by which God's people would be delivered from their iniquity and their transgressions and would be justified. They would be declared righteous in God's sight through the suffering of this servant. We saw that in Psalm 22, that, that messianic psalm that opens with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that psalm, this person is described as being laid down in the dust by, of death by Yahweh himself. And that, that means of laying him down in the dust is described as his hands and his feet being pierced. Right. Clear depiction of crucifixion 600 years before crucifixion was invented. In all these different ways, we see that in the Old Testament, the Messiah was, uh, de- it was declared that the Messiah would suffer. And in the events of Good Friday, we find all of those promises, all of those prefiguring pictures, all of those prophecies fulfilled in one man, our Lord Jesus Christ. The man who was betrayed by his people, sold as a, for the price of a common slave, bore the cross as a means by which the Father would lay him down in the dust of death, piercing his hands and his feet and bearing the sins of his people, suffering the fullness of God's wrath so that he might bring them into the fullness of his own righteousness. That's what we looked at Friday. If you weren't here, you missed it. It's a great time. But a suffering and a bleeding and a dying Savior is no good to us if after that suffering took place, that Savior remained in the grave. If this man suffered death supposedly on behalf of his people in order to save them from death, and yet never rose up from death himself, then all that proves is that he does not have the ability to save anyone from death. He couldn't even keep himself from death. A dead Savior, in other words, is no Savior. And if one claimed to lay his life down as a ransom for many, and yet never rose from the dead and took up his life again, it would only prove that the ransom price that he offered was not accepted by God. It would only prove that what he gave in his death on behalf of others was not worthy enough to cover the debt that those people owed to God. And so Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, 
then indeed our faith in him is in vain and we are still in our sins because he is still suffering the agony of death, which means he hasn't conquered it. And if he hasn't conquered it for himself, then he hasn't conquered it for anyone else. Now, there were many people in Israel who arose declaring to be Israel's promised Savior, Israel's promised Messiah. You can see some examples of, of them in Acts 5, verses 36 through 37, where we find mentioned there a, a man named Theodos and a man named Judas, uh, Judas the Galilean. Now, both of these men, it's, it's clearly stated that they were put to death and their following fizzled out after they were put to death. And the reason for that is because after they died, they never rose again. Their death proved that they were not, in fact, the Savior of God's people. The proof that they were not the promised Messiah was not necessarily the fact that they died, because as we've seen, the Old Testament said the Messiah was going to die. But the proof that they were not the promised Messiah was the fact that after dying, they never rose again. So they didn't fulfill that section of the Old Testament scriptures that declared that the Messiah would rise again. Now Luke 24, 46 makes that clear. That the Old Testament bears witness to the fact that when Christ came, when God's appointed Messiah actually did appear, not only would he suffer and die as a substitute for his people, but after his sufferings, he would rise again from the dead on the third day. And that resurrection would serve as the definitive proof that the one who was raised truly is God's appointed Savior for his people, and that the death he died on their behalf truly was worthy enough to deliver them from death. And we find these two glorious predictions of the Old Testament about the Messiah having been fulfilled in history in one person, one man, this Jesus of Nazareth, the seed of David, the seed of Abraham, the one whom Romans 1.4 says was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead through the spirit of holiness. The prophets predicted that a suffering Messiah would, would come, but they also predicted that that suffering Messiah would rise again after his sufferings. And so it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that singles him out and demonstrates that he is the one that all the prophets and all the Psalms and all the law of Moses spoke about. Christ is risen, proving that he is the Christ. I was waiting on someone to say, he's risen indeed, because he has. Now this is a reality that many in history have sought to disprove. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They've sought to disprove it because they rightly understand that if this one piece of the gospel message can be taken away, then the whole house of Christianity will topple. So if you're trying to find a reason not to believe in God, and you're trying to find a reason not to believe that Jesus Christ is God's chosen and appointed King, His Messiah, and the only way of coming to the Father and finding His favor, if you're trying to find a reason not to believe those things, then the one thing you want to attack is the resurrection. Now, countless numbers have tried, and I'm not going to go through all of their efforts here. We don't have time to do that this morning, and that's not my aim. We can talk about that some other time. 
But let me point out the fact that there are very few things in history that are as well attested to us as Christ's resurrection from the dead. For example, the empty tomb, right? No body ever recovered. Right? Well, you could pass that off and say, well, maybe they just did, maybe they destroyed the body. Well, well maybe. But the fact that there was no body ever recovered so shortly after that time, a, a tomb that had been guarded by, by pretty stout and pretty hardened Roman guards uh, and sealed with a seal of the emperor, that anyone who opened that tomb would do so under pain of death, and those soldiers were right there to execute that order. Uh, that is a big mystery. What happened to the body if Jesus Christ was never risen from the dead? The transformation of the disciples is another element of the historical narrative that is an absolute mystery and makes no sense whatsoever apart from the reality of Jesus Christ rising again from the dead. Their transformation from weak and trembling souls who had abandoned Christ and consistently doubted the resurrection even after it was reported to them their transformation from that all of a sudden into men who were as bold as lions Men who are out and unafraid and unashamed to declare the Lord Jesus Christ as the risen King of glory. They were not timid whenever they came into real contact and faith with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Not only were they willing to suffer in order to declare that message, but they were also eager to suffer. And they rejoiced and embraced in that suffering if it meant standing firm and maintaining a testimony for the truth. You don't suffer so horrendously the way the apostles did for something that you know is a lie and something you know you made up. Even the reality of this entity called the church, the fact that there is a church established in history and that it has continued on to this day is a testimony to the fact that something cataclysmic happened around the time that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. That's the historical cause and effect. There must be a cause for every effect that has taken place. What has caused this thing, this body, this institute called the church to arise and to stand? In fact, one of my favorites to think about is the reality that Christianity was birthed out of a society that was absolutely and totally opposed to it. Now, if it, was, if it rose up in a society that was doing everything it could to reject the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would expect to find other materials produced by other people negating and contradicting the writings of the apostles. But there is no such thing found in history. Because everyone in the lands of Judea knew exactly the events that had taken place. And they knew that this special man named Jesus really had done some pretty miraculous things. And no one could deny it. In fact, Josephus uh, mentions this 50 years later. Notes that Jesus was a miracle worker that was, risen, that was raised up by God. Performed signs among the people. The fact that people were still talking about it, a secular historian, if you will, still talking about it 50 years later, shows that there was something pretty significant. Now, all of, that's, all of that's true. All of these give a strong witness to the historical fact of the resurrection. And these can only be explained by something so great and monumental as a resurrection from a Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. But more powerful than any piece of evidence and more, uh, uh, 
more powerful than any historical proof or even more powerful than a verifiable eyewitness of these events is the testimony to the resurrection given by God through the witness of the Old Testament. This is what Peter himself says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. I'm just going to read that. Follow along with me. Peter writes, For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves, Peter says, we ourselves, we heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And then he shifts in verse 19 and says something pretty remarkable. He says, and we have the more sure prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your own heart. So for Peter, there was something that was more powerful of a witness than even seeing Jesus Christ robed in glory and hearing the very voice of the majestic glory speaking to Christ from heaven. There was something more powerful than being an eyewitness to those things, and that was the testimony of the prophetic word, to which, he says, you'll do well to pay attention. Well, this is exactly what Jesus is getting at here in Luke 24, 46. The events that had transpired on Good Friday had taken place according to what had already been written. And he is calling his disciples here to believe in that reality by paying attention to what has been written. And so we looked at many of these ways that the suffering of Christ was predicted throughout the Old Testament. This morning, what I want to do is spend some time looking at how God speaks to us about the resurrection of Christ from the Old Testament. If this truly is the more powerful witness to the reality of what took place, then we would do well to pay attention to that witness, would we not? So in Luke 24, 46, Jesus, standing in his resurrected state, tells us that right there in the Old Testament is all the witness that we need to know that this has all happened according, as, according to plan. So where in the Old Testament do we find the resurrection of Christ? Where do we find it even spoken of with such specificity as stating that the resurrection would happen on the third day? It's one thing to say that it would generally happen. It's an entirely different matter to say that it's not only going to happen, it's going to happen at this time on the third day. Where do we find things like that? Well, I see many places and many ways that the Old Testament tells us these things, and that's what I want to look at together now. Probably the first and most obvious place to go to is the very text that the apostles would go to most often to speak about the resurrection of Christ from the Old Testament, and that's Psalm 16. Verse 10. Verse 10 of Psalm 16, King David wrote that God would not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is death, nor give his Holy One over to see corruption. Now, when Peter is preaching the gospel of Jesus to the Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, we find him making a beeline to this passage. 
And I just want to read that section to you. If you want to open it, uh, Acts chapter 2, we're going to read from verses 22 through 32. In verse 22, we find Peter telling these Jews in Jerusalem, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up, Peter says, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For, look where he goes. Here's the proof of what he just said. God raised him up. It was impossible for him to be held in death's power. Where's the proof of that? Well, right here, Peter says, For David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope, because you will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One over to see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full, full of gladness with your presence. Peter says, now I really want you to notice verses 29 and 30. Peter says, men, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. In other words, Peter's argument is David, the one who wrote this passage in Psalm 16, died and saw corruption. How do we know that he saw corruption? Because his body is still over there in the tomb. We know exactly where he's laid. So, if David wrote this and said, God will not abandon my soul to, to Sheol, he will not let his Holy One see corruption. If he was writing that about himself, then God would either have broken his promise or David would have been wrong. But Peter says David was not talking about himself when he wrote about that. He was, in fact, talking about the Messiah. Verse 30, it was because he was a prophet that he spoke of these things. And it was because he knew God's promise that God would establish one of his seed to be upon his throne forever. That's, that's uh, 2 Samuel 7.13, where God promised to do that for David. So David, being a prophet and knowing the promise of God, spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, he says in verse 31 or 32. And so you can see the Apostle Paul doing this same thing in Acts chapter 13, verses 33 through 38, if you want to go read that later. But Psalm 16 was understood to be a definitive Old Testament witness to the fact that the Christ would be raised from the dead and not abandoned in death by God. Now, there are other places and other ways that the Old Testament tells us about the resurrection of Christ, um, even hints that it would take place on the third day. And so just as with Christ's sufferings, we see hints of his resurrection also presented in types and shadows throughout the Old Testament. To go back to Abraham and Isaac, you guys know I brought that up Friday for the sufferings of uh, pointing to the suffering of the Messiah. Well, I believe here there's a reference as well to the third day resurrection of the Messiah. And let me explain that. Some may see this, I'm going to give a qualifier out there. Some may see this as an obscure and perhaps unclear reference. But I think in light of the New Testament's revelation of how this picture and this type of Christ found its fulfillment, 
it seems like it should be seen as a foreshadowing of the third day resurrection. Notice in Genesis 22, verses 3 through 5, in verse 3, God calls Abraham to go sacrifice his one and only beloved son upon a mountain. He reveals to him where that mountain is. And so Abraham rose early and saddled the donkey and took all that he needed in order to make that sacrifice. And he and his men with Isaac set out on the journey. Verse 4 makes specific mention that it was on the third day that Abraham saw the mountain that the Lord had revealed to him. And then notice what he says in verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey And I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and we will return to you. What is he going to that mountain to do? He's going to the mountain to sacrifice Isaac. He's going to kill him, in other words. So where is this idea that somehow he's going to go worship with Isaac on the mountain and both of them are going to return to these servants? Is Abraham not understanding some concept of resurrection in that? So just let me point out here, just what I'm noting, this is foreshadowing the resurrection of Christ by the fact that Abraham was looking for a resurrection of Isaac and this mention, specific mention of the third day on which Isaac would be sacrificed and both of them would return to these men. I believe that's pointing to the third day resurrection of Christ. You may not see that. Let me give another bit of evidence. I believe Genesis 41 verse 1 in the mention of Joseph might be pointing towards a third day resurrection, at least highlighting the concept of three. You know the story of of Joseph, how he was sold into slavery and brought into Egypt, thrown into the prison unjustly. He was uh, suffering for a, a righteous deed that he had done, and all of that is picturing what ultimately was fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ? Well, here, after he interprets this dream from the cupbearer and the baker, it says that it was, two, it was after two full years that he had the opportunity to be risen up out of this prison and established as the ruler in Egypt. Now, why does it say after two years? Well, obviously, that was the amount of time that it took, but it doesn't always speak with that kind of specificity in the Word of God. So why does God give us this kind of specific reference to time in this passage? Well, I believe it was because it's signaling that it's at the beginning of the third period of time when Joseph was risen up out of this dungeon, this this type of death, and was exalted to be a ruler in Egypt. It was after two whole years that he was risen. What does that mean? It was at the beginning of the third year. That's what that means. Maybe you're still not convinced. Let me give some more. Jesus himself pointed to Jonah as a sign that clearly signaled his own resurrection, his third day resurrection. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, tells us about the scribes and the Pharisees coming and seeking a sign from Jesus, seeking to have Jesus prove himself to them and said, give us a sign so that we'll know who you are. Verse 39, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
Now, we know the account of what happened to Jonah. Jonah, while running away from his calling to be a prophet to the Gentiles in Nineveh, wound up uh, being cast overboard from a ship and was swallowed by a great fish appointed by God. And while he was in that fish for three days and three nights, we read his prayer that he prayed to God in Jonah chapter 2. I want you to notice in Jonah chapter 2 verse 2, Jonah clearly speaks about being in the fish in terms of dying. He says, I cried out from the belly of, not the fish, the belly of Sheol, the realm of the dead. I cried out from the belly of death. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, he spoke in language that indicated that in the belly of the fish he had been resurrected. You see, he says, you have brought, my, you have brought up my life from the pit. And you say, well, wait a second. No, that's talking about when he spit up on dry land. No, it's not. Because at this point when he says that, he's still in the belly of the fish. So what is he talking about? God raising his life up from the pit if he's still within that fish and has not been raised up out of it yet. It's not until verse 10 that he prays to God and God commands the fish to vomit him up on dry land. Now this event with Jonah was a picture of what was going to happen to the Messiah. Just as Jonah went down into the depths of death, the realm of Sheol, being, um, and then was returned to the land of the living, returned to dry land, well, so Christ would go down into the depths of death in his suffering and in his agony. And on the third day, death would vomit him out. He would take his life up again and return to the land of the living. So those are some types and shadows where I see the death and resurrection, particularly the third day death and resurrection of Christ. Something interesting to add to that is a picture of the third day resurrection that we see in the sacrifices of Israel. And uh, I'm going to try and run through some of these so that we can get to the substance of where I, I see more clear evidence of the resurrection. But just listen to Leviticus chapter 19, verses 5 through 8. Leviticus 19, verse 5, it says, When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to Yahweh, to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense, and it will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity, for he has profaned the holy thing of Yahweh, and that person shall be cut off from his people. So here we're talking about a, the sacrifice of a peace offering, and God clearly says you are not allowed to eat any of this peace offering on the third day or after. Why is that the case? Why not the fourth day? Why not the fifth day? Why not the seventh day? Seven's holy. That's a holy number, right? Lots of significance in sevens. Why the third day? Well, you can try to come up with various reasons. Well, the, the meat wouldn't be good or blah, 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 or this or that. They knew how to preserve meat in those days. You can try and come up with various reasons, but the fact is they were not permitted to eat on the third day, eat that meat on the third day because of the intention of God who was the one who instituted that sacrifice. 
They may not have understood the full significance of what that sacrifice was representing, but God understood the full significance of what that sacrifice was representing. Who is our true peace offering? Who is the one in whom we will have peace? Micah 5, doesn't it tell us that it's the Messiah, the one who would be born in Bethlehem, who would regather the people of God in whose days we would have peace with God? He himself would be our peace. That's what God had in mind when he instituted the sacrifice. Why not eat of it on the third day? Because God knew what he was going to do through the sacrifice of his son. That sacrifice, Jesus was only going to be in death two days. On the third day, he was going to be risen again. Now, you've got to transfer that over to the new covenant. That picture, that type of this sacrifice. Anyone who eats this sacrifice on the third day, it is an offense to God and it will not be accepted. What is that signifying to us? If you continue eating that sacrifice on the third day, what are you saying about what that sacrifice was intended to accomplish? You're saying it wasn't enough. Because you are continuing to eat it. You're continuing to partake in that sacrifice, right? Same way with Jesus. Think of Roman Catholic Church here. What do they say about the doctrine of the Mass? Christ is being re-sacrificed over and over again. What is it on the crucifix? Is Jesus on the crucifix or is he off of the crucifix? He's on the crucifix because they believe he's still suffering. What this peace offering picture is trying to tell us is that on the third day of the, of the suffering of the Messiah, his sufferings would be over. They would be complete. The once and for all sacrifice would be done. Nothing else would need to be given. The only thing that would have to be done was receive it. That's what this is picturing. I believe this is a clear picture of a third day resurrection of our Lord through the law of Moses and the sacrifices. Well, even in the prophets, we find explicit statements referring to a third day resurrection. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Hosea writes, Come, let us return to the Lord, return to Yahweh, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has struck us, but he will bandage us. Notice this, verse 2. He will make us alive after two days, he will raise us up on the third day. Well, in the historical setting of this, prophet of this prophecy, these statements are referring to God's dealings with Israel and Judah. He judged them for their sin. He was bringing other nations in judgment upon them and was leading them out of the promised land and into foreign lands, right? That's a picture of death, leading them out of the presence of the living God and forsaking them over to dead lands where dead idols were living, But then the prophecy says that they would be resurrected. They would be restored from captivity and they would be returned to God in the land of promise. Now there's one difference between the historical situation of God's people here as it's described here and what is stated in this prophecy. And if any of you who know the history of Judah and Israel know that once Judah had been abandoned and uh, forsaken to captivity, It took 70 years for them to be resurrected to the land, not three days or two days. It took 70 years, not three days. And so I believe this prophecy was pointing beyond Israel and Judah to the suffering and the resurrection of another. And in the New Testament, it's clear 
whose suffering and resurrection we're talking about. We're talking about the suffering and the resurrection of Christ. Some of the more powerful statements to Christ's resurrection in the Old Testament are actually found in those passages that are describing his sufferings most clearly. So, for example, to return to Psalm 22 from Friday night, we we saw in Psalm 22 this suffering of a person who would be forsaken by God, who would be laid down in the dust of death by Yahweh himself, whose hands and feet would be pierced by the Gentiles, who would be given over to death. And yet, by verse 24 in Psalm 22, we find that this very same person who had been forsaken of God and who had been handed over to death is now seen as one who is being delivered from his affliction by Yahweh. So the one who laid him down in death is now the very one who's delivering him from death. And then that results in verse 27. This great deliverance of this servant yields the fruit of all the families of the nations remembering Yahweh and returning to him and worshiping before him. You should see in that the language of the promise that God gave to Abraham. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. What is Psalm 22 talking about? It's talking about the fulfillment of that promise. That God had finally given that seed of Abraham to the world. And that seed had suffered on behalf of sinners. And in raising that seed up, that seed was going to usher in the fullness of blessing God had promised to give Abraham. That's Psalm 22. Wonderful picture of resurrection. You see this in Psalm 41, verses 5 through 12 where the rulers of the people are gathered against this one person saying, let us pour something out so vile upon him that he will die and will not rise again, that his name will utterly perish from the earth. You see there in verse 9, it even talks about a close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread. He has lifted up his heel against me. Who are we talking about? New Testament says we're talking about Judas right there, which means that this whole psalm is about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10 through 12. You find this plea and this prayer to be raised up. This person who was handed over to something so vile that everyone else thought there's no way he's going to rise again from this. Here in verse 10, he cries out to Yahweh with a plea and a prayer. And he says, raise me up from this deadly thing so that I might repay my enemies. There's no tender, soft Jesus there. That's Jesus with the sword of vengeance. Verse 11 says that it's by doing this that Yahweh would demonstrate that this person was one in whom God delighted. One in whom God was pleased that he would not let his enemies triumph over him. And then in verse 12, it ends with this declaration of Yahweh making this one who had suffered so greatly stand firm in his presence. Not for a moment, not for a day, not for a year or or even ten years, but forever. Bringing him up from death forever. Again, the New Testament tells us that this psalm finds its fulfillment in the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, one more. Can I do one more Old Testament picture here? Isaiah 53. Not only the clearest prophecy concerning the suffering of the Messiah, but also a clear prophecy concerning his resurrection from the dead. Notice specifically in verse 10. It says it pleased Yahweh, it pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. If you, Yahweh, speaking of Yahweh, if you would place 
or establish his soul as a guilt offering. He will see his seed. He will, he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. Now what is obvious is that this suffering servant would be offered by Yahweh as a guilt offering. Meaning, he would be handed over to death for the sake of others. But it also says here that after that has happened, this suffering servant would prolong his days. Now you may already know this, but guilt offerings don't prolong their days once they've been offered. Guilt offerings are consumed on the altar. Their life is spent. They don't prolong their days. In fact, guilt offerings don't rise up again after they have been consumed in death and bring the will of Yahweh to pass. But what we find in this passage is that this suffering servant who was in fact given up as a guilt offering, who verse 9 says was in the grave and verse 12 says poured out his soul unto death, Verse 10 tells us that after all of that has happened, he would be raised up again. He would prolong his days and establish the will of Yahweh in his hand. That can only mean one thing. That this person who had suffered and poured himself out unto death would in fact be raised again from the dead. Being crushed by Yahweh, bearing the sins of his people, offering himself as a sacrifice to atone for that sin and to cover their wickedness, Yahweh would then raise him up to prove that his death had truly satisfied justice and was now able to justify the many. Now I go through all of that simply to point out that the reality of Christ's resurrection is all over the Old Testament. Thus it has been written, as Jesus said, that the Christ, the Christ would suffer and he would rise again on the third day. Now I want to end our time this morning focusing briefly on the significance of the death and resurrection of Christ. Amen? Is that amen to the briefly or is that amen to the substance? Amen. Amen. Luke 24, 47, Jesus says, that the Old Testament not only tells us that the Christ would suffer and rise again, but also that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is now going to be preached to all the nations in his name. We might change one word there to here Jesus tells us that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is now able to be preached to all the nations in his name. Not just that it will be, but that it is able to be preached. Forgiveness, the nature of that word, it simply means a release from something. It means liberation. It means being set free from something that has held you in bonds. Right? So whenever, when a fiamy is spoken over someone, Greek word for forgiveness, it is, it is speaking over that person a liberation. Cancellation of that bond. In fact, it was used to describe divorce. When you wanted to divorce someone, you could use this word aphiomi to describe what was happening. It was a separation and a cancellation of that commitment that you made in marriage. 
And Jesus says here that forgiveness can be preached among all the nations. Now it is possible in his name for a sinner to be released and separated and divorced from their sins that they have committed against God. The reality of, I want you to think about this. The reality of justice is that it is never appropriate to forgive someone who has committed a crime against the law. The reality of justice is that it is never right to release someone from a sin that they have committed. Think about that in our human courts. If a judge let someone who was clearly guilty of murder go free without ever paying the penalty for that crime, what would we say about the judge? That judge is not upholding law. He's not upholding justice. He's not magnifying righteousness. He's not demanding righteousness in the society. He is corrupt. That's absolutely right. Now, if God, how can it be true for us How can that be true for us in a lower court system that we have and not at the same time be far truer in the courts of God? If we would call a judge unjust for absolute, just just releasing a guilty person to go back into society and not pay for the crime that had been committed, we would call that judge just, yet we think that God will do the same thing for the guilty? That he will commit the abomination against his own character? He will act so contrary to his own innate holiness and his own innate righteousness that he can simply let someone go who has committed a crime against him. How can we have a higher standard of justice than God? The guilty must be punished Or else things like justice and righteousness and law mean nothing. It would be an absolute abomination for God to release and forgive sinners of their sins. It would be an utter contradiction to his holy character unless something had taken place that enabled him to do that. Unless something had taken place that satisfied the justice that is demanded of you and me as guilty sinners. Unless something has happened in order to satisfy that in the the judgment room of God, in the courtroom of God, he can't let us go. And Jesus comes and he says, it was written that Christ would suffer, it was written that Christ would rise again, and that forgiveness would now be preached among the nations in his name. You see what God has done in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? He's given the only way that anyone like us could find salvation with Him. This is why Jesus can say, there is no other way to the Father except coming through Me. If you go to the Father outside of Jesus, you are going to be met with the hammer stroke of justice because that is exactly what you deserve and that's exactly what He's going to give you. 
But God in his love and in his mercy and in his kindness and his forbearance and his patience and his desire that sinners like you and me would be saved, he sent forth his son. He gave him over to death. He, he, he called him to satisfy the full justice that we deserve. And he raised him up from the dead on the third day to prove to us that he is worthy of salvation and he is able to save. That's our hope, right? This is the significance of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus says not only that forgiveness would be proclaimed in his name, but that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name. God gives no forgiveness without repentance. This is why Jesus, when he came in Mark chapter 1 preaching the gospel, his very opening words were, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand. Now repent and believe the gospel. If you don't have repentance, you don't have real belief in the gospel. But I want to point out something about this repentance here. It doesn't come at us like a threat from God. You better repent or else. That's not how Jesus speaks about repentance for the forgiveness of sins here. It's not like the God of the Muslims who arbitrarily chooses who will and who will not be forgiven, who will and who will not be saved, regardless of what they've done. Rather, this, this call for repentance comes to us as something that is sure and is not an empty and vain hope. The promise of forgiveness of sins through repentance is promised and guaranteed to all who will turn away from their sin and come to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who will have true repentance. What is true repentance? True repentance is true brokenness over your sin. True repentance is mourning over the fact that you have sinned against God and your heart is filled with a genuine sorrow over that reality. True repentance is having a true resolution before the Lord that you are no longer going to walk in the path of unrighteousness because now it's not only seen as being grievous to God, but now it's grievous to you. True repentance is a resolution to walk in humble love with thankfulness before the Lord, trusting in His promise to forgive your sin. Because the repentance for the forgiveness of sins that is to be preached among the nations and that you are hoping in is a repentance and forgiveness that is grounded in and rooted in the name of the one who suffered for sin and rose victorious over it. Is preached in the name of Christ. Now, I'm already going later than I intended, but stay with me here. I, I fear that the significance of the resurrection is lost even on most Christians today. I have a hard time. I don't know if you know this. I have a hard time every resurrection day when we say together, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. It really troubles me. Because I wonder in my mind, do we really believe what we're saying? 
I mean, seriously, do we really believe what we just said? We're going to be judged for every idle word. Is our confession that Christ is risen, He is risen indeed, is that real? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most significant event in human history, and it is the most significant event that anyone in this world will ever know about. In fact, the New Testament, you know what the New Testament does with the resurrection of Christ? It presses the importance of Christ's resurrection into every single area of our lives. Acts 17.31, what is the basis upon which God the Father stands before all the world, including us sinners here? What is the basis upon which He stands before us and demands that each one of us repent? It's the judgment day that's to come, which is proven by the fact that He has raised Christ from the dead. Romans 4.25, what is our hope of justification? What is our hope of being declared righteous in the sight of God? It says it's the resurrection of Christ. 1 Peter 3.21, what is our hope when we enter into the waters of baptism and we call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, that we would be cleansed from sin and reconciled to Him. What is our hope that God will hear that prayer and will answer it in His grace? It's the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 What is the power that causes a believer to be born again? Raised up out of their state of deadness and sin and brought into newness of life with Christ. What is it that causes that kind of power to flow into a dead sinner like you and me? What made you alive with Jesus Christ? What brought you out of your sin? What made you understand the reality of God and the hope of the gospel and the feel, that, that, that sense that you can trust in Him and you can come to Him in the name of Jesus? What gave you that confidence? Peter says in 1 Peter 1.3, it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ through which we have been born again unto a living hope. It's the power of Christ's resurrection from the dead that touched your life if you've truly been born again by God. Romans 6.4, this is not only the power that caused us to be born again, it's the very power that enables us to walk in newness of life with Jesus Christ. It's not a once and done thing. Salvation with Christ is not something that happened 30 years ago. It's something that happens every single day. We walk with Christ. We live with Christ. We're in fellowship with Him. We enjoy the reality of the newness of life that He has given us. And it all flows to us by the reality of His resurrection. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Jesus says this is, in fact, the reason why believers... When we come to face that gray curtain that is falling upon all of us, death, the reason believers are able to face that curtain with boldness and with courage and with unflinching confidence is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Jesus says in verse 8, This is what the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says, Do not fear, verse 10, what you are about to suffer. 
Yes, the devil is going to cast some of you into prison. You will be tested. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Let me ask, who is he to give such an order to us? What gives Jesus the right and the authority to command us to be so recklessly daring with our lives that we would willingly fling them over to death for the sake of being faithful to Him? Who is Jesus to command such a thing? Well, He is the one who was dead, but now has been raised to life, never to die again. He's the one who has the authority, even in death, to give us life. Beloved, the significance of Christ's resurrection from the dead cannot be exhausted by words. I fail to exhaust it. But one day, when he who is the resurrected life himself with thunderous voice calls you forth out of the grave and brings you into perfect conformity with the body of his glory, on that day, you and I will see the significance of the resurrection in a way that right now we can't even imagine. I'm going to see you standing radiant with the glory of the resurrected Jesus Christ. You're going to see me standing radiant with the glory of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And at that moment, all the things about me that just are so unnerving and irritating and and things that you just can't stand about me, my, my tone of voice, my flailing of the arms, whatever it may be, my personality, whatever you don't like about me is going to be perfectly perfected. Amen. Amen. Yes. You're going to see me standing in Christ's glory. Right. This is is the hope of the resurrection, guys. And the glory of it all, Romans 10, 9. If we believe, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It's a simple faith that clings to nothing but the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what saves. That's what God uses to save sinners. A simple clinging to Jesus. Now this resurrection day I cannot end without asking, do you know this resurrected Christ? Do you know him and the power of his resurrection? Do you walk in newness of life with him? And be honest with yourself. We all put on a face in front of other people. We want to present our best. But you know what's true about you behind closed doors. Behind closed doors, does the resurrection life of Christ work in you? Do you really know him? If you can't say that you do, I I would urge you, I would invite you, I would plead with you to come have dealings with Christ himself. He swears in John 6 that no one who comes to him will ever be cast out. Come deal with Jesus. And you believer, 
If you know Christ and you know His power and His glory in a way that is only possible through the Holy Spirit of God, then today, rejoice in Him. Give thanks to God for the salvation that you have in His name. Live in the reality of it. Don't walk around despondent. Don't be despairing and doubtful and discouraged. Christ is the victor and He's won victory for you. And He expects you to live in the freedom of it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the great hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the gospel or the good news that you have not consigned us to the judgment that we deserve, but you have given us a savior to pluck us out from the fires. Lord, you have raised him from the dead to prove that he's able to go through it and come out on the other side and lead us through it well. Father, we hope in, in your son and we pray that by the spirit, you would help us have fuller hearts and a fuller and more robust confession that Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. May our lives truly reflect it, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.